This is a presentation of LifePoint Church. Our mission is to make gospel-centered disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information, please visit sharethelife.org. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It is one of the most profound and sublime hymns of praise about Christ in the whole Bible. It is a profound exaltation of who Christ is and what he has done. It's a statement of faith, but it is more than that. It is much more than just theology. It is an act of worship and praise to God. And if we miss this sense of worship and adoration, in the reading of this text, then we miss the whole point. And so to that end, I would like, before we begin our study this morning, to bow in prayer and ask God to move in our hearts in worship and adoration. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, will you open our hearts this morning and turn them toward you and toward your Son, Jesus Christ. Grab our attention right now. Help us to put aside all the other things that press in upon us and help us to focus on Jesus. Move in us and among us so that our hearts and emotions respond to what you are telling us. Remove the hard calluses of our hearts so that we can absorb the truth of your glorious grace to us. Change us this morning. Draw us closer to you. Melt our stubbornness into submission and devotion. Take your inspired word, and by your Spirit, speak into our hearts and minds this morning. Revive us. 
and make us fully devoted disciples of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for hearing our prayers and for coming upon us in this hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think anyone would disagree with me if I said and commented that our world is broken and hurting and falling apart. Many things need to be fixed and repaired and changed. Just this last week, we passed the terrible milestone. One million people have died of COVID since March of 2020. That is almost as many as have died in all of the wars of our country since 1775. The Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Spanish-American War, World Wars I and II, and Korea, and Afghanistan. One million deaths. In addition to that, we are debating about abortion rights and the right to life. We're talking about the war in Ukraine and how it affects the whole world economy. And inflation threatens our economic future. Our world is hurting. And we need to know how to react and to live through this time of turmoil and chaos. That's why we're in this series, a series about our perspective and how we view the world. Somehow we want to be able to have a, a framework that provides an explanation of what is going on and the fallen, broken nature of our world and of our own human condition. It is part of our worldview that explains the reality of what we live every day. Very briefly, the story so far, as we see it explained in the Word of God, the first point is God is the Creator. That means He is the designer of the whole universe and everything that exists, both visible and invisible. And we have emphasized that God is holy. He is a person. He's not some force of nature. And he is good. And God's design has been revealed and given to us through his word. God's design is good and it's beautiful, and it's just. Therefore, we as human beings will flourish best when we embrace his design. In the second week, we saw that human beings are created in the image of God. 
We're the highest of all of his creatures on earth. And this means that we share some of the characteristics of God. We're made in his likeness, but we are never completely like him. God has given us a unique position among the creatures, and he's made us higher than all of the others. Because we have a spirit within us that is capable of thinking and speaking and relating with others and with God. Therefore, we have a unique value in God's creation because God loves us and wants to share his life with us. Human beings were given a special mandate or purpose, and that is to steward and care for the creation under authority of God himself. And then last week we saw how those first human beings, Adam and Eve by name, broke their covenant with, with God and they disobeyed his commands. And this brought ruin and chaos into God's perfectly designed creation. That's why we see all the brokenness and the hurt and the turmoil in our world today. The sin of Adam broke this special relationship with God. And Adam became a slave of sin and Satan who now rules the world. And while God still valued Adam as his special creation made in his image, Adam became a prodigal son who wandered in a foreign land away from God. Adam and Eve struggled to manage the creation and make it productive because corruption of sin made work and childbirth very painful and very difficult. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to those first three sermons in this series. They give many more details about the story of reality as revealed in the Bible. They give the framework, the worldview, by which we can make sense of the chaos and the turmoil in which we live today. But today I have good news. God has a rescue plan. He had it in mind before he even created the world. And he is already putting it into practice. He began putting it into practice immediately after Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. God's plan was to call out from among all peoples and nations those who would trust him completely and who would obey him faithfully. Now, in the Old Testament, he chose and called out a special people, the Hebrews, called Jews. And he revealed to them his character and his moral principles of life. And he entered into a covenant with them to become their God and make them his people. Unfortunately, the Jews could not live up to these standards. 
like all of the descendants of Adam, they inherited a sinful nature that infects and corrupts everything they did. But God provides a way to cover over the sins and weaknesses of these, his people, the Jews. By blood sacrifice of animals, he had them, he had them sacrificed so that their, their sins could be covered and forgiven. But of course, the blood sacrifice of animals did not change their heart. And so the chosen people failed over and over again to follow God's plan of redemption. So God took the next step, and he sent his one and only son to make the blood sacrifice of a perfect human being so that the sins of the people could not just be covered, but forgiven and washed away forever. And God promised this Messiah Savior to ransom and reconcile anyone who trusted him and bringing them back into fellowship with himself, the Creator God. And so our text for us today shows how Jesus Christ is the one and the only one who can reverse the curse of Adam and restore to us our fellowship with God. So we turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And the first thing we notice is Christ is the supreme, preeminent person in God's rescue plan. He is preeminent, the preeminent figure in the unfold, unfolding plan of God. First of all, Christ is preeminent in God's plan of rescue because of who he is. And our text in verses 15 and 17 give us two things about who he is. He is the image of the invisible God, and he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Let's look at those, but in reverse order. First of all, Christ is preeminent because he is the creator of all things. Verses 15b through 17. He is the firstborn of all creation. And when it says firstborn, that does not mean that he was created or born or came into being. It means that he has the priority over all creation. Like a firstborn that has first priority in any inheritance and honor of the family. So in this context, Paul means that Jesus Christ has absolute priority over all creation because he existed before it. He states this plainly in verse 17, he is before all things. And Paul immediately explains what that means in verse 16, for by him, 
all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, by him. That should probably be translated in him, meaning that Christ is the sphere in whom all things were created. God's creation takes place in Christ and not apart from him. Through him means that he is the agent of creation. For him points to Christ as the supreme reason all things were created, namely for his pleasure and his glory. And not only did Jesus Christ create all that exists, he sustains it. In verse 17, in him all things hold together. This is similar to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, which asserts that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. It means that if Jesus decided to let go, the entire universe would disintegrate. Douglas Moo, and the theologian, explains what holds the universe together is not an idea, not a force of nature, not some virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. And without him, electrons would not continue to circle, circle the nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. He is the one that created and he holds it all together. This gives us this conclusion. Christ is preeminent. He's pivotal in God's rescue plan of all creation because he is the one who designed it. He brought it into existence out of nothing, and he sustains everything in the universe, both visible and invisible. But there's more. Christ is preeminent because he is the image of the invisible God. Paul means that Jesus Christ makes the unseen God visible. The Greek word is icon, and it's used to talk about the image of Caesar on the Roman coins. The average person couldn't see Caesar, but by looking at a coin, they could see what he looked like. God is spirit and invisible to human eyes, but Christ has perfectly revealed him, not just in an image on a coin, but as an exact imprint of the original. Now, Adam was created and formed into the likeness of God. And God made him into a copy of God in some ways, but not in all ways. 
But Christ is different than that. He was not made to be a copy of God. He is the brilliant expression of God in visible form. He is the exact duplicate of the original. Adam was only a created copy of the original. That's why Hebrews 1.3 says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. You know, we've been using a puzzle to sort of make a, a metaphor of this worldview, this picture of reality. And we've talked about the edges and, and the, the straight edges and getting the framework and everything. But when we say that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, we're saying that he's the picture on the cover. He's the center of that picture. He's the one that we look to when we're looking at those little pieces, trying to figure out where they fit. And we look to this to see how it all fits together because he is the one that reveals to us what it's all about. Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. And this story reminds us of what John said in his gospel, in the first chapter of the gospel of John. There the story of Jesus is told and it begins like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. He's saying the same thing we've just read in Colossians. But don't miss the connection between this and John and the first chapter of Genesis where we began. The one called the Word is the same one who starts the story in the beginning in Genesis. Remember how that story begins? In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Jesus, you see, is the creator God of Genesis. And he is the main player. He is the main character that the story is all about. He is the person who owns everything, since he made everything. He is the kingdom king, and the kingdom belongs to him. And then further down in John chapter 1, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's the same thing as saying he is the image of the invisible God. So don't miss this implication of the fact that Christ is the image of the invisible God. It means that Jesus was born and became a human being. Though conceived by a miracle, Jesus still entered the world through labor and blood and pain, like all children. He grew as we all do, 
through joy and sadness, compassion and anger, rest and weariness, delight and suffering, friendship and betrayal. But Jesus is truly a human being. But he is also God who began the story, the God who made everything. He is the same God who came down, who became flesh, who entered history as a baby born in Bethlehem. Jesus is a man, but he's also God. He is not a God, he is the God. He is the man who God became. He is the one person who is completely human, yet fully divine. And now we begin to understand the significance of this statement in our text. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ, the God who created and sustains all creation, became a human being and dwelt among us. And as the God-man, he is the image of God that makes the invisible creator known to us in our created world, revealing to us his glory and grace. That's who he is. And because of that, he is preeminent in God's plan of redemption. But there's more. Beginning in verse 18, Paul explains that Christ is preeminent in the rescue plan of God because of what he has done. Colossians 1, 18, verse 18 through 23 contains several very dense, deeply profound statements. So let's just take them one by one in order to understand what Paul is claiming about the work of Christ. First of all, I want you to notice, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's verse 20. And that Truth is repeated in chapter 2, verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's why Jesus is the exact imprint of the invisible God. In his human body, all the fullness of God dwells. That term implies that the totality of the divine powers and attributes are in Christ. We could talk a lot more about that. But it also implies that this human being, God in the flesh, lived a perfect life. Because he was the perfect God-man, Jesus lived the life we should live, but do not. We rebel. He submitted. We sin. He obeyed. We live for self. He lived for the Father. We falter. He succeeded. 
He had no hint of sin, no darkness, no shadow. As one put it, he remained free, uncontaminated, and uncompromised. Jesus never failed, obeying even to the death. This no one has ever done. There was no one like him. And so we see the second point. This perfect God-man who lived a perfect life makes peace with God for repenting sinners by the shedding of his innocent blood on the cross. Verse 20. We need to remember something here. We, rem we need to remember that the Creator God is angry. He is the one who was offended by the sin of Adam in the garden. He is the one who is owed. He is the sovereign we have rebelled against, the father we have disobeyed, the friend we have betrayed. And that's a dangerous place to be, for us to be in. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And later in this story, we learn it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Man owed a debt to God, and man must pay. Yet what kind of person can make a boundless payment to cover an endless punishment, a penalty due for the sins of an entire world? A human being must pay the price for sin, but only God is able to pay it. So the gap between man and God must somehow be bridged, and that can only be done by the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the perfect man, laid down his life on the cross and so paid our debt to God, the penalty for all our sins, and therefore he purchased our freedom from slavery to sin. You need a moment to just think about that. That is so stunning, so inconceivable. But there's more. Jesus, the perfect God-man, took our sins and he gave us his righteousness. On the cross, Jesus made a trade. He took his perfect life and he traded it for our rotten lives. He gets our badness and the judgment and the punishment that go with it, and we get his goodness. We take his place, and he takes our place. And I know that seems hard to imagine, but let me give a story that may help us to understand. A pastor was speaking to a Muslim woman 
about the differences between God and Jesus and God and Mohammed. The pastor said both were holy and both demanded that we be holy too. And there will be justice to pay because we are not holy. But on this issue of justice, he said, we come to an important distinction. He asked the Muslim woman to imagine that the plane they were riding on was hijacked and the terrorists trying to, were trying to drag her out onto the tarmac to kill her in front of the cameras for all the world to see. He then asked her to imagine that he put his own body between hers and the attackers. And he said, don't take her, take me instead. She said, I can't imagine anyone doing that for me. Yet this, he said, is what God has done in Jesus. To satisfy justice, Jesus came down. Not Allah, but Yahweh. Not Mohammed, but Jesus. The trade took place on an outcropping of rock outside the walls of ancient Jerusalem. It was called Golgotha, the place of the skull. We know it as Calvary, the place of the cross. And Jesus reconciled us to God, and he made peace with God. And someday he will reconcile the whole creation to God by exchanging his perfect life for our rotten, sinful life. He took our sins, and he gave us his righteousness. And because of this exchange, our fellowship with God is restored. We are reconciled to God. The result of this reconciliation brings us to the point, third point, those who trust Christ and his death on the cross as their substitute are transferred from the kingdom of sin and death and placed in the kingdom of light and life. Verses 22 and 23, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, by faith have been reconciled, and you now are holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This means that you once were in Adam, condemned to, to eternal death, but now you are in Christ, justified with eternal life. And because of this, we reach a glorious conclusion. Because of his work of reconciliation, Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, verse 18. 
Because Jesus died for our sins and paid the ransom to rescue our souls from slavery to sin and death, God raised him from the dead. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, in his resurrection, Jesus Christ became the first among many who are freed from the slavery of sin under Satan and are now living in the freedom of eternal life. In effect, his resurrection, Jesus Christ created a whole new species of human beings. Those who are no longer under the curse of sin and fall of all human descendants of Adam, but they are now living in the newness of life eternal in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says the good news is that all believers can know with certainty that their heavenly bodies will someday be like Christ, imperishable, eternal, glorious, and filled with power. The Apostle Paul, John wrote to the believers, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been revealed and made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Because of who Christ is and what Christ has done, we now have a choice of how to fit in to God's plan. Those who are in Adam are under condemnation and face eternal death. But those who are in Christ are under justification and look forward to reigning with Christ in eternal life. All of us are born into Adam and born into a life that will end in death. But you do not have to remain in that condition. God, in his great mercy and grace, has provided a way of escape. He has provided a rescue plan in the person of Jesus Christ. And you can choose to trust him today. And when you do, he will give you the authority to leave the kingdom of sin and death and be born again into the kingdom of life and light. But you and you only can make that decision to change your destiny. You and only you can choose Christ and life and escape sin and death. But as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become the children of God. The ultimate purpose of God in creating and governing the world in the way he has done it is to display the astounding and abounding grace of God. Not to the exclusion of the display of his justice and judgment, but against the backdrop of this judgment and wrath, 
He gives us a revelation of God's ultimate purpose in the world. And all this is made possible because it comes through the one man, Jesus Christ. The glory of God's grace is the glory of God's plan. All history focuses around him. All the glory of God culminates in him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we prepare to end this service in worship. You see, Jesus Christ is the only one who is worthy, worthy of our worship and our adoration. He is the only one who is God perfect, but who has reconciled us to himself. There is no one else who could do that. His plan is gracious and it's glorious, and he alone is worthy. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Let's stand together and worship him who alone is worthy. This has been a presentation of LifePoint Church. It is our greatest desire that every person would trust Jesus Christ as the leader of their lives and the forgiver of their sins. If you would like to make this decision today or find out more, please visit sharethelife.org.